Uh, also, I hear Nelson is threatening to come back Tuesday evening, uh, so uh, I, I think I'm supposed to pick him up about midnight Tuesday. He's trying to sneak back in, I guess, in the middle of the night, but uh, he might say a word that he have a safe trip and get back here unless we look forward to having him back. I hope he didn't hear that, but uh, I think we all are. All right, last week we started into the book of John <clears throat> because it has many parallels with the Passover, which is coming. And many times I have stated over the years that the Bible is essentially written for the end-time church. The early New Testament church had the letters and, and the Gospels that had been written at that time, but it was written and printed and kept for us. Now, that being said again, this book ties in very, very specifically with what we see happening in the church and in the world right now. Uh, you might not have noticed that reading through John, but I'm going to show you some parallels that are just like the end time. In fact, the book of John, even though we look upon it as something John wrote that has to do with Christ and the Spirit of God, uh, primarily, uh, and obedience to the commandments. Uh, there is a prophetic timeline in here, which I think we have entered upon, and it, it becomes very, very clear, as I think we shall see. Now, John starts it with uh, words about Christ and how he was with the Father in the beginning and that he was the one that created the world. In other words, he's laying the groundwork in the very first chapter, that Christ is what this is all about. It isn't about mankind. It's about Christ and what he is going to do, what he has done and what he will do, and how he, uh, how he came and brought light, and, and uh, he was not well received. But he was made flesh and appeared on the earth, and he recounts, at least briefly, that John the Baptist was a type of the original Elijah and that uh, he had appeared before Christ, six months before Christ's ministry began, being six months older than Christ and his cousin. He began to preach Christ and that he would be coming. So a preparation had to be made, if you will, before Christ first appeared to begin to truly teach on the earth while he was here. Uh, we find a parallel in Malachi 4 and in uh, other scriptures, uh, the Gospels particularly, that there will be another Elijah at the end time to restore all things and prepare the way for Christ. So the story is being repeated. And then, what did Christ do? He began to gather people together to help him do the work that he had to do, uh, the disciples and others who began to follow him. Now, what do we understand that he's going to do here at the end? He's going to begin to gather a remnant to help him do the work that needs to be done here at the end time. So his very first act, once he became official, was to gather a people to help him. And that's exactly what he's going to do. He says it's a 10% remnant of that which was called out 
and chosen from those to come and build the temple here at the end time. So the parallel is perfect so far, uh, and the next thing that we have from a voice crying in the wilderness and a restoration of truths is uh, Christ beginning to gather his remnant. That's uh, prophetically what we can expect to come along fairly soon now. Now, this continues in chapter 2. <coughs> I wondered over the years why winemaking was the first miracle, but I, I think I can tie it in with end-time prophecy very clearly here and show you a very, very important reason that this was done. I mean, there were sick and blind and deaf and crippled people all over. Why would you make wine? Uh, okay, let's get into it. Chapter 2 of John. And the third day, there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. So he showed up, began to gather disciples, and on the third day after this beginning, probably after his baptism by John, and then the starting to gather, uh, the third day from that, I think is what it's referring to, there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Emmanuel was there. Well, what is one of the most important end-time prophecies about? About Christ coming to claim his bride and have a marriage made in heaven, with Christ being the bridegroom and the 144,000 being the bride. So he introduces immediately here what his goal and purpose is, that there is a marriage coming up, and it is a very, very important event. It's what God's purpose is, provide a bride for his son, and then they produce children to increase the God family. So a marriage in Cana of Galilee fits very well with what we're anticipating now when the first resurrection occurs and the 144,000 rise to meet the bridegroom, or run out to meet him, as it would may have been put in the Song of Songs. And both Emmanuel was called and his disciples to the marriage. Now, who is the father going to call to the marriage supper? Christ and his disciples, his followers, 144,000 of them, including these apostles who had been originally called here. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Emmanuel said to him, they have no wine. Now, why is wine involved and why is that important? Well, wine can represent doctrine, good or bad, because wine is good for us, used properly. It is something God provided and made possible. And there are many, many uses of good wine, or wine for good purposes in the Bible. And then there is the misuse of alcohol, which can cause all kinds of problems. We're going to see that here in a moment. So they wanted wine, and Christ's mother was there, said to him, they have no wine. Now, we know from Paul's writings that the mother, in many, in many respects, typifies, or the church typifies the mother. Uh, Jerusalem, which is the mother of us all, as he says in Galatians. So, uh, Christ's mother was there. And it's interesting what is said here. Emmanuel said to her, Woman, what have I to do with you? My hour is not yet come. So here was his mother saying, Here's my son, 
And if you need some wine, he can fix it. He can do this for you. And he said, woman, my time isn't come. And she ignored him. His mother said to the servants, whatsoever he says to you, do it. Now, she must have had some insider perception here that this was an, imp- an important event, and she had been with him since his birth, and she knew his devotion to the Father in heaven and his way of life, and she knew somehow that he could solve this problem that they had of running out of wine. Now, he said, my hour is not yet come. Well, he hadn't really begun his ministry, had he? Uh, He had been baptized. He had begun to call disciples to help him with that ministry. But it wasn't until the Sermon on the Mount, which apparently came after this in the other scriptures, that, uh, that he began to really teach and begin his ministry per se. So he said, my hour is not yet come. Anyway, verse 6, it says, And there were set there six water pots of stone, after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece, about 20 gallons each, so that would be uh, roughly uh, 80 to 120 gallons of wine, uh, if you if made wine out of all that. Now, they were set there after the purifying of the Jews. Well, now, he was about to do something that was pure, that was good, that was better than anything else around. Okay? We'll see that here. Emmanuel said to them, after protesting, he went ahead. He said, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast. And they took it. To him, And when the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not where it came from, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everybody, every man at the beginning does set forth good wine, and when then have well drunk, then that which is worse. But you have kept the good wine till now. This is normally... You bring out the best first, and people think you're serving good stuff, and then after they've had enough that they don't know the difference, you give them some cheap stuff, and they don't care at that point. So he said, why did you give them the cheap first and then bring the better stuff? Well, what teaching had the world had up to that point? What were the Pharisees and the Sadducees putting out? What did the Jews believe? It wasn't good doctrine. It was bad doctrine for the most part. Now they did teach the law, and that you should follow Moses and so on. Uh, but they had perverted it. They changed it. And they were not leading the people in the way that they should go. Now, water represents doctrine as well. But when it's fermented like that, it's raised to, if you will, a higher level, a higher use. Uh, if somebody is having troubles and... They need to get away from their troubles for a while. Do they ask for a glass of water? No. Proverbs 31, in fact, says that uh, when, what was it, the king or some, or a man anyway, uh, is downtrodden and he's feeling very, very bad, 
and discouraged and frustrated to bring him wine, and that he might for a little while forget. Now, that doesn't mean that people ought to be drunk all the time and forget their troubles every day, but it means on occasion, when troubles mount, uh, wine or alcohol can help uh, ease the pain for a little while. Uh, you know, water or grape juice won't do that. It's, it's in that sense a higher form of beverage that can be used for something that even water can't. And Christ was about to start bringing the very best doctrine, the very best teaching that the world had ever known. Now, there was nothing wrong in that sense with what Moses had brought, especially the commandments. But Christ, as we saw in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, raised the commandments even to a higher level, uh, a better understanding in the Spirit. But now you not only don't do sin, you don't even think sin. So it is a higher level of teaching. So this first miracle that Christ did had a very deep symbolical meaning. Now, did he actually make physical wine? I think he probably did. Uh, but the meaning there was spiritual meaning, that he was going to bring the best teaching that had ever been brought to the world. And I think there is the, the meaning and the symbolism behind why wine was made as his first miracle, because it represents the teaching that he would bring to the world. And we know that he is about to work with people who are willing to keep his commandments and follow him and use them as an example to the rest of the world when he gathers his remnant to Zion, which is going to happen very shortly. So the parallel is certainly there, and that's why he is going to have another type of Elijah or a preparer or a John the Baptist type at the end is to restore things such as the promised land, where Zion is, where Jerusalem is, how to keep the Passover, and on and on and on and on of things that we never understood before that are certainly biblical and are a matter of history. So those things have to be restored in order for us to even know where God is going to bring his remnant and what he's going to do with them. <clears throat> even as Christ gathered his disciples there, from here, from there, from everywhere tax collectors, fishermen, you name it. And he said he's going to gather his remnant from around the world here at the end to set up a microcosm, if you will, of the kingdom of God, that they can be, uh, that they understand the light, the truth. So the symbolism here is very, very powerful. And it didn't matter how much of the cheap wine, or the old wine they might have had, uh, it didn't do for them what that which Christ presented would do. Just as nothing anybody teaches on the face of this earth today does any good for us uh, in the long run, except that which is true, that which is truth. True history, true doctrine, true teaching, everything. Verse 11, this beginning of miracles did Emmanuel in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. Now, one of the main purposes behind this was not only to typify 
truth and good doctrine, the best doctrine, but it was also to show who he was. Now, he tells us in Zechariah 3, here in the end time, that he will begin to do signs and wonders. Joel 2 talks about it as well, right here at the end time before the coming day of the Lord. But he will do signs and wonders again. Well, he did the same thing in Acts 2, beginning the New Testament church, to show his power, his glory, and what he is capable of. So he did that here with this first miracle. So it was more than just, hey, here's a wedding. Uh, they're out of wine. Why don't you make some? Or, you know, somebody make a wine run. Uh, there's, there's a lot more to it than that. <laughs> much, much bigger and deeper picture. <coughs> now, after this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother, and his brethren, and his disciples, and they continued there not many days or for a few days, and the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Emmanuel went up to Jerusalem. So it was the time of the Passover. He had begun his ministry in the springtime. Uh, and, and, uh, and he found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. So he went into the temple of God, and there he saw what? Materialism. Making of money. Now, that temple was to represent God, it was rep to represent spirit, to represent true worship, but here it was being used as a place of merchandise to make money. Materialism had replaced spiritualism. Isn't that much of what the Sermon of the Mount, on the Mount was all about, was putting God first and obeying Him and not worrying about food or clothes or shelter or money or wealth and all those things? Well, here he found in the very temple of God, the materialism had taken over. I ask you, has it taken over in America? Is the economy and materialism and things the main emphasis of people, or is it not? And perhaps it even became that within the church of God, so that we were not truly seeking the spiritual, but were being uh, sidetracked by the materiality of the world around us. The entertainment, the money, the houses, the cars, the, you know, whatever. Uh, better jobs became the focus rather than God himself being sought with all our heart. I think that is the case, and that's why the church was blown apart because of lukewarmness and Laodiceanism. Uh, the, the scripture is very clear. Well, now what did he do? When he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple, the sheep, the oxen. He poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables. He got quite violent about it. That scourge uh, would probably draw blood. <laughs> he whipped them. And he ran the animals out of the temple. What were they doing? They were in there being sold, and they were uh, going number one and number two all over the temple while they stood there waiting to be sold. He said to them that sold doves, Take these things out of here. Make not my father's house a house of merchandise. Flip over, if you will. We'll come back here, of course, to Revelation 18. We have shown very clearly, I think, in the past, that this great whore here 
is the United States, the present leader of the whole Babylonian satanic system that uh, has hold of the whole world, but we are the leaders of it. In fact, the UN, the United Nations, which represents world government, sits in New York, which is the financial capital of the world, uh, that, along with London. So Ephraim and Manasseh have the two major capitals of finance in the world, at least at the moment. It's shifting to China and so on, but today it's still America. Anyway, the beast and the false prophet are going to hate this whore, America, and they're going to destroy her. But notice what he says here, verse 2 of 18. He cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit and the cage of every unclean and hateful bird. So, this nation, Ephraim, is now full of demonism and Satan's way, selfishness, greed, vanity, jealousy, all those human characteristics that Satan so much works on. Notice verse 3, For all nations, all peoples around the world, have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Now, there's a misuse. Wine can be false doctrine. It can be bad wine. Wine can be used for wrong purposes. So what are people drunk on in the world today? They're drunk on materialism. They're drunk on money. They're drunk on the pleasures of the flesh. And America is the one who has made all nations rich of materialism. Can you say that America has made the world rich in spirituality, that we have taken God's Word around the world and taught people to live according to God's ways. Is that what America is known for? I don't think so. We're known for making the nations rich. And the rest of this chapter talks about how the merchants will weep when we are destroyed. They'll sit out in their ships that have been taking goods, materiality, merchandise, back and forth across the seas, and making nations rich. It isn't talking about the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church hasn't made anybody rich but themselves. They have destroyed nations. They've made them dirt poor. They took everything they could get from South America and Mexico when they stormed across the New World. Supposedly New World. It was actually the Old World revisited. But nevertheless, the rest of chapter 18 talks about all the goods and services and merchandise and material wealth. And that has been our focus. And if people didn't go along with our system of capitalism and merchandising, then they got hammered. Jeremiah calls us the hammer of the whole earth. But he says in this chapter that this materiality, this merchandising, is going to all be taken away and we will be taken into captivity and it is in the context of chapter 9, the marriage of the Lamb, which will happen soon after, verses 7 and 8 and 9 of chapter 19. So, Christ, right after, he showed that there would be new teaching and better teaching and the best teaching that had ever been through the miracle of wine, uh, showed the contrast by driving the physicality out of the temple, the merchandising, the marketing, the money-making. 
because the emphasis in the temple of God needs to be on the spiritual, not on the physical. So he was very irate here. And what is he going to do here in chapter 18 of Revelation? He says, They've all drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. We, as Ephraim, the supposed leader of the nations of Israel in the end time, have gotten clear away from God, and we are kicking him out of our schools and our courts and, and our land and our politics and everything, uh, and going with the physical completely. Spirituality is done. They're even saying now that this isn't a Christian nation anymore. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins, and that you receive not of her plagues. Now, is that paralleling what Christ did when he walked in the temple and saw the emphasis on materiality? The story's exactly the same. And it immediately turns here in Revelation 19 about how the earth had been corrupted and how Christ is coming to claim his bride in the marriage of the Lamb. And he said he would not drink wine anymore from the time he died on this earth until he drank it again with her in his kingdom. So he is refraining for this period of time, a little over 2,000 years, from having wine himself. And he did drink wine prior to that, even with his father in heaven. There is a scripture back in, I think it's Deuteronomy as I recall now, which said that wine cheers the heart of God and man. Maybe maybe because of us, God needs his heart cheered with a little wine himself now and then. It obviously affects him. It cheers his heart. So, uh, Christ is going to reserve the very best to have with us in his kingdom when the marriage comes. So, he gave them better wine, better teaching, from the very onset of his ministry. And even before the hour had quite come, uh, he laid the background for what was to come. And then we find that the exact same things happening here in the end time, that Christ is going to come to his bride, but he is going to destroy the people, the nation of Ephraim, Manasseh, and the other Israelite tribes, just as he drove the money changers out of the temple, he is going to drive Israel into captivity. The parallel is exactly the same. Now, this is a prophecy of the end time. Now, let's go on. Verse 17, His disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of your house has eaten me up. Now, is Christ zealous? Yes, He is. And He is has already taken a scourge to the church and driven it out of his house. He has destroyed the former temple. It's dead now. It was Sardis, Worldwide Church of God. And he is about to rebuild the temple. But you're going to see as you go through the book of John, it has to be built on the spiritual, not the physical. That is so very, very important. We have right now people, I think we're a microcosm, and I think we're a type of what's coming. 
We got up to 150, and now we're down to about 15, uh, about 10% left. And I think that is a message from God, uh, a message that we perhaps got our focus wrong as well. And there are people who are focused on land now, on materiality, on owning land or whatever. That may be their reward. I hope that's not all their reward, but it just could be. God said, didn't Christ say, if you focused on the wrong things, that would be your reward. And he said, lay up treasures in heaven instead of treasures on earth. So we must be very, very careful, brethren, what our focus is. It needs to be on God and the spiritual, not the physical, or we'll feel the scourge even more. Christ is very jealous, he says, of his bride. And he wants her to be what she's supposed to be. And if we have not been what we're supposed to be, we have need to repent and be prepared and be ready. Did he not say in the Song of Songs that his bride would go to bed and get her teddy bear all hugged up and her feet would be warm and he'd knock on the door and she'd say, Oh, I'm in bed. I'm all comfy. Leave me alone. And then she realized, uh-oh, what have I done? And then she ran through the streets looking for him and couldn't find him. So there's some warning there. And he is very jealous and zealous of his house. <coughs> and the disciples would remember that. Then answered the Jews and said to him, What signs show you to us, seeing that you do these things? Well, they'd seen him start doing some things, and, you know, what sign do you have of you being important? And Emmanuel answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty-six years was this temple in building, and you will rear it up in three days? You know, it took a lot of workmen, and it took us 46 years, and we finally got the physical temple built. We're going to tear it down and build it back in three days? But he spoke of the temple of his body, that they would kill him, and three days later he would be raised up. When, therefore, he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them. And they believed the scripture and the word which Emmanuel had said. So he was making a prophecy here, and three years later, uh, his disciples would see three days after he died that he was resurrected by the Father in heaven. And it confirmed all the things that he would teach during the time he was here on the earth. Just as the things that he has said in the Old Testament prophecies and the things that are being revealed here that occurred are all going to happen again. Even the two witnesses are a type who die and are resurrected, I think it's three and a half days later in their case, but it represents the three and a half years of Gentile domination, the 42 months, and how everything they do can, in three and a half years can all be set aside and all proven completely kaput, wrong, upside down, and evil three and a half years after they kill the one, three and a half days after they kill the ones that have been tormenting them. And was not Christ tormenting these people in some respects? Oh, yes, he was. 
They tried every way possible to kill him and deny him and deny his teaching. They didn't want the good wine. Okay, and 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, in the feast day, interesting the way that is put, the Passover occurs at the beginning of the feast day, so he was at the Passover, the ceremony the evening before, on the feast day. Next day, the morrow. Many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. Now, God has used miracles through the Old Testament and in the New Testament, and I've seen some myself, and you probably have as well, healings and various things that God has done that would not have occurred otherwise, deliverances and various things where he has taken a hand. A lot of people can recount in their lives where they might have died if somehow the Spirit of God had not intervened and allowed them to live. So there is power that God has. People say, well, he doesn't do magic. Well, what do you, how do you define magic? God has power. And if he has ways that he can deliver that are unnormal, let's say, uh, then it had to have come from a greater power and a greater spirit. It's not magic, it's the power of God. And people are impressed by miracles, and it helps them believe. But Emmanuel did not commit himself to them, because he knew all men, and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Now, he had committed himself to the disciples, had he not. He said, come follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men instead of fish. I'll give you the wine of better teaching. They were there. They saw the water made into wine, and they knew that they were going to get better teaching from him than anywhere else they had ever gotten it. <clears throat> but he didn't commit himself to all these people who saw him do some miracles and believed in him, because he knew they would not be converted. He knew they would not continue to follow. His disciples, his apostles-to-be, would continue, but these people wouldn't. It wasn't time for him to bring salvation to them. Uh, there is an order for, and a different time for different people to have opportunity at salvation. So he knew what mankind was, deceitful and desperately wicked. He was very familiar with human nature. He lived as a human and been tempted. So he didn't commit himself to these people, even though they gave him lip service and, and word of mouth that they believed him. He was, he was not that naive that you say, oh, I accept you all. Uh, believing on the name of Jesus ain't enough. <laughs> uh, I think this proves it, that the Protestants today are way off base when they say all you got to do is accept his name because of what you saw or believed. No, it takes obedience to his laws and his commands and following his way of life, the right doctrines and teachings. Anyway, the next chapter shows uh, that thinking in terms of the Spirit of God rather than fleshly ways of thinking and acting are what this is all about. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So Nicodemus was well up in the ranks, <clears throat> an important man in that sense. 
The same came to Emmanuel by night and said to him, Rabbi, uh, that's interesting that he came by night. He was an important man among the Pharisees, and maybe he kind of snuck in at night so he wouldn't be seen going to talk to Christ uh, by his peers during the day. I don't know that. I'm kind of reading that in, but I suspect that may have been the case. So he says, We know you're a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that you do except God be with him. So he recognized, even though he might not like Christ, that there had to be some kind of presence from God there. The man wasn't, uh, didn't understand. But Christ explains to him. Emmanuel answered, verse 3, and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, a lot of Protestants and religions uh, claim they're born again. Maybe they didn't read the rest of this, because born again means something different than what they believe. They think that once they accept the name of Jesus, they're born again, and uh, that they're saved. Well, no, they're not saved yet, I'll guarantee you. Uh, let's see what born again means, because Christ introduces it here. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, that was, you know, Nicodemus understood birth. He understood babies are born and little animals are born. And here's somebody saying, be born again. Well, what do you do? Shrink down and go back in your mother's womb? Uh, or don't shrink and kill her while you're trying to be born again? Uh, how can that be, he said. What do you mean, be born again? That's stupid to me. Emmanuel answered, truly, truly, I say to you, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Now, are you and I flesh, or are we spirit? There we get the old hat pen test again. Stick yourself with a needle or a hat pen and find out if you're flesh. I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm spirit. I'm still pretty fleshly. I just noticed I had a cut on my ankle. When I got out of the shower today, I bled. Uh, I don't even know how I got the cut, but I got it, and I bled blood. So I must still be flesh, not spirit. And he makes a very, very clear statement. You and I were all born once of the flesh, and we are still flesh. So born again means you have to be born of the spirit, and then you become spirit. A lot of people have encountered spirits in life, either the spirit of God or the spirit of Satan. Demons or angels uh, interact to some degree in our lives. He says, marvel not that I said to you, you must be born again. He says, I, I meant something different than the way you interpreted it. So then he explains, the wind blows where it desires, and you hear the sound thereof, but cannot tell where it comes from. And where it goes, so is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Have you ever seen wind? I've experienced wind, but I've never seen any. 
I've seen particles in the wind of dust and papers that are blowing. I've seen the effect of wind, but I've never seen the wind itself. So he says, if you're born again, or born of the Spirit, you're like the wind. You cannot be seen by the human eye. Now, are all these people who say they're born again, born again? No, they're not born again. They're not spirit. You can still see them. All right, let's see, where was I here? Uh, verse 9, Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? He said, This is beyond my comprehension. I don't understand. Well, you know, I understand being born, but I don't understand what you're talking about. Emmanuel answered and said to him, Are you a master of Israel and know not these things? Here you are, a teacher in Israel, and you don't understand? Well, David understood it. He knew that he would lie in the grave until his change came. Uh, well, that was Job that said that, uh, until he was made spirit at a resurrection. And David understood that. He knew there was a kingdom to come when God would reign on the earth. So there were people in the Old Testament who understood a certain amount of true spiritual things. So he says, you're of Israel, why didn't you understand this? Well, <laughs> he'd never been taught. Nobody had ever introduced him to it. Verse 11, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak that we do know and testify that we have seen, and you receive not our witness. So he says, there have been miracles here, there have been things that have come, and now I'm giving you better doctrine, better wine. Was this guy at the marriage at Cana of Galilee? I don't know, might have been. He might have seen these things, because he came wondering, you know, this man is somehow of God, but I don't understand. So he says, I'm telling you, but you don't believe it. Verse 12, if I have told you earthly things and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? You think you're going to understand things of the Spirit? You don't even understand the physical? And then he says, verse 13, and no man has ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. Now, that is a statement a lot of people today in the Protestant world think they're going to heaven when they die. It says in Acts that no one has ascended, not even David, as grave as with us to this day. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David are not in heaven above. They're in their grave. Well, the Protestants take a real hit here in John 3. <clears throat> and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So, Moses picked up the rod turned snake uh, in, the, in the wilderness, and even Christ has got to be lifted up as well. His doctrine, his teaching... Moses had better teaching than the Egyptians or the Mitzriamites had. And he taught Israel about God. They said, which God? Who are you talking about? Well, we got the same situation here today in this land. Nobody knows the true God of heaven and earth 
the creator of all, a living God who exists and by whose power the universe was created and is today. They don't know that God. They know a false Christ. They know a false God. But it's not the true God. So Christ must be lifted up. Well, what does he say about that in the end time prophecies? Here he was showing to the world in his day who he was. Now what's he got to do here at the end? The exact same thing. All the way through the book of Ezekiel it says, And they shall know that I am the Lord. He says he's going to bring about and show the treasures of God that are buried. And that will show mankind from east to west that he is God. Now, he's going to cover the temple that is to be built physically with gold. Now, Christ said we're not to emphasize the physical and gold and silver on this earth. So now why is he going to turn up all that gold and silver here at the end? book of Haggai says, the silver and the gold is mine. Now we have a world who is, that is, mesmerized by physical wealth, materiality, and money, whether it be fiat dollars or whether it be gold and silver or assets, real estate or whatever we count as wealth. That is the goal and the purpose of the whole earth. And I tell you, the God is going to reveal the, the uh, Solomon's mines, and I do believe that they will have more gold there than the Chinese and the Russians and India and America and all of these combined. And there's a reason for that. God has in mind to show mankind that He is God. And he's going to say, you can gather all your wealth up, and you can say, look how rich we are as New World Order. We have the gold, we have the silver, we're in control of all things. And God will say, i got a pile of gold bigger than yours. And then he's going to have his temple made, and he's going to have it covered with gold. And then you know what? Shortly thereafter, after Jerusalem is built the Gentiles are going to come in and they're going to defile that golden temple for 42 months. And they're going to think they have the world by the tail. We have all the gold and now we have Solomon's gold and now we have a temple covered with gold and we are the cat's meow. And then Christ is going to return. Well, no, let's, let's, let's back up just a moment. He's going to have his two witnesses going around the world, teaching them that materiality and all that gold and all that silver means nothing. And they'll be able to appoint to God's remnant in a place of safety in Zion, and they're going to be living in peace and prosperity and have everything they need and they're going to be happy. And that will be contrasted by the rest of the world, which has been by that point decimated by 90%. The rest of the people are in captivity, except for those few elites 
who have all this gold and silver that they're bragging about, and they think that they are the world leaders forevermore, and that they're going to set up a kingdom of God in a millennium of a thousand years. And the two witnesses are going to be a thorn in their side, telling them that it's all just materiality, and they can have their pile of gold, and they can take over God's pile of gold for a short time, and it won't mean a thing. And they will torment those leaders of the world, going from city to city, tormenting them, and telling them that it's all in vain, and then they'll be killed. And three and a half days later, Christ is going to come and consume their eyeballs out of their head. And they will know that God is God, and that materiality meant nothing. That the only thing that is important is the Spirit. I've wondered, how will God use gold to show that he is God? I think that's the answer to that. He's going to show them that gold isn't going to save them. Doesn't do you any good to have all the gold in the world. Not only that would you mind yourself, and that which was in Solomon's minds. Add it all up, and it still means nothing unless you live by the Spirit and keep the commandments and treat your brother and your neighbor as you would yourself and love God with all your heart. just occurred to me today that that's probably why or how he's going to use that gold which he claims is his. Give it to him. Okay, you want it? Sure, for 42 months. Happy now? No. <laughs> no, we got those two guys tormenting us. And we got those people living in Zion, and they have everything they need, and they have peace and security and health. No, we don't. Now who's God? Okay. So does this wine and this driving the merchandisers and the people that have their minds on money and materiality out of the temple make a little more sense in terms of what's about to happen on this earth? This is all prophecy. He's trying to explain to Nicodemus here, you can't even understand the physical, much less the spiritual. Well, is that the way our world is today? Boy, you better believe it. And even this, all this Protestant theology is baloney. He says, nobody's gone up to heaven, the, the, the heaven of God's throne, the, the third heaven. There are heaved up places on this earth. Uh, there's three levels of heaven. The air where the birds fly, and the heaven where the stars are, and the heaven where God's throne is. Okay, so nobody's gone there except the Son of Man. And Christ has to be lifted up like Moses lifted the, serf, the serpent up. That whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, he shows in other places, and he does in the Sermon on the Mount, that believing in him means keeping the commandments and in the spirit of the law, not just believing that Jesus is a name that's good, but actually believing him enough to do what he says. He says there in, in that same sermon, it's not the, believe, the hearers, but the doers of the word that shall live. So he's offering eternal life, not just his physical life. Born again as spirit. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The Protestants use that verse an awful lot. And it's a true verse. It's a very good verse. But they don't understand what it means. They don't understand that we are to become very God. That we're to be part of his family. Just as my family, physically, my children are physical, just like I am. They're my family. They bear my name. I put their uh, front names on them. They're given names. They're my family. And they're physical, just like I am. And the poor kids even look somewhat like me. So, I'm their father. That's it. Now, God says, kind begets kind. And that which is spirit is spirit and cannot be seen. So if you're born again, that means you're in the kingdom of God, but nobody's been born again yet because nobody is spirit yet. And even those who die lie in their graves and know nothing. Ecclesiastes 9.5, the dead know not anything until that resurrection occurs and they are changed into spirit in the moment in the twinkling of eye uh, as 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4 show. So, Everlasting life is promised. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world. Now, His righteousness, His obedience, is, in that sense, a condemnation of the way the world is living. But that isn't the purpose of His coming. He didn't come here to condemn everybody and say, I lived right and you lived wrong, so you're dead. It's not what, that wasn't the point. The point was, he came to live a perfect life to show the world that that is the way to live and that the world through him might be saved. So he says, you're all depraved, you're degenerate, you're liars and cheats and thieves and ungodly. But through him and his sacrifice, we might be saved because his life representing God was more important than all of our lives put together. So he didn't come here to condemn us. He came here to sacrifice himself that the penalty of sin might be covered and that we don't have to die for our sins, that he died for our sins. And through him we can have forgiveness if we repent. He that believes on him, verse 18, is not condemned. But he that believes not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And he would be the only born at that point who became spirit again. <laughs> Our very fact that we're human, we're already condemned because we've all we're already condemned because we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. So the only thing we have to look forward to, any human being on this earth, is death. And death that is permanent unless somehow, some way, in some time, we turn to God and accept Him and accept His way and are forgiven, then He will give us the gift of eternal life. So we're not condemned if we believe Him, but if we haven't yet learned about Him and believed Him, then we are condemned until that time comes. And that time will not come until the second resurrection at the end of the thousand years when the rest of the dead are raised and have their opportunity to learn the truth. Because most people live and die 
and never know the truth about God or who God is even. Verse 19, And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. How many people look around and say, I want to find God and I want to do everything His way? How many people out in the world do you know that are doing that? Not very many. No, our deeds are evil. We're deceitful and desperately wicked. And therefore, we don't want light. We want to continue in darkness because we can continue to seek materiality and the gratification of the flesh and do the things we want to do. And therefore, we don't want to follow God because then we have to control ourselves and not do the things that human nature demands that we do. For everyone that does evil hates the light, neither comes to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. You know, if you see murderers and drunks and thieves and people committing fraud and con people and, and, and like that, they don't want to be told better. They don't want to be rehabilitated. That's what they call going to prison, rehabilitation. Give me a break. How many, how many prisoners coming out, out of there truly rehabilitated? No, they just learn to cheat and steal better when they're in prison from better experts than they are. Now, I've seen people get Jesus when they were in prison. I've experienced meeting people who are prisoners who've, who've written to us and uh, talked about how we were teaching the truth, and as soon as they get out, they're going to they're going to serve God with all their heart. I had one up in Dalhart, Texas, that I saw several times. And uh, he said he was, he was headed. As soon as he got out of prison, he was coming here to this place where we are. Uh, he understood everything I was teaching, and he wanted to be here, and he wanted to follow God with all his heart. And the day he got out, he'd be here. Now, he got out several years ago, and I haven't seen him since. He found Jesus until he got free, <laughs> you know, and then Jesus went away. And uh, I have no idea, I have a pretty good idea what he's doing today because I know what he had done before. But he sure didn't show up here. <clears throat> so they get religion until they get freedom, and then it, and it goes away. They don't want the light. Verse 21, but he that does truth comes to the light that his deeds may be made manifest that they are worked in God. We need to change our way of acting and doing so that it is an approved way of living that's approved by God and it can be pointed to as an example of good, not of evil. So verse 22, after these things came Emmanuel and his disciples into the land of Judea and there he baptized with them or tarried with them and baptized. <coughs> uh, we'll find later on that he didn't do the baptism himself. He may have done counseling, but his disciples did the actual baptism, which I think he did certainly on purpose, so people can't, wouldn't be able to say, well, you were just baptized by John. I was baptized by Jesus himself. And self-righteousness would grow out of that. And it wasn't sprinkling. You needed much water to baptize. <clears throat> for John was not yet cast into prison. Then there arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. And they came to John and said to him, Teacher, 
He that was with you beyond Jordan, to whom you bore witness, behold, the same baptizes, and all men come to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. Uh, you yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He didn't take it on himself. He was sent by God directly. And it was prophesied ahead of time by his mother and his father. Uh, but he said, I'm just here preparing the way. He that has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom which stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This, my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. He says, I'm not the bridegroom here. I'm just here to support him and help him and be his best man, if you will. He must increase, but I must decrease. This is his wedding we're talking about. Uh, he was beginning here to prepare these men to uh, run the New Testament church, and he has prepared people here at the end to do the same thing with the end-time church. It comes from God. It doesn't come from a human being who sets himself up. That's presumption, which God says is the same as witchcraft. Uh, he that comes from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthly. And he says, Christ came from God in heaven. I was just born here on the earth. And speaks of the earth. He that comes from heaven is above all. And he speaks of the spiritual things, which he did with Nicodemus here as an example. And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies, and no man receives his testimony. He that has received his testimony has set to his seal that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God gives not the Spirit by measure to him. So God sent Christ to the earth, and he didn't limit the amount of God's Spirit that Christ had. He had full power of the Spirit. Well, how could God work through him with full power? Because Christ was not filled with vanity, pride, and ego. He was humble. He was meek. He understood that of himself he could do nothing, and that it all had to come through his Father in heaven. And therefore, God was able to work powerfully through Christ. And when we get ourselves out of the way, uh, God will be able to work through us here in the end time to do his work, and that's what he's calling his remnant to do. So he is going to stir those who are willing to put him first and his ways first. And he will pour out his spirit and give his power to the end time church. He said he'll give power to his witnesses so that they can do the job they have and stand against this new world of order which is coming up. Verse 35, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. <laughs> he that believes on the Son has everlasting life, and he that believes not the Son shall not see life. Christ is the key. There's no other door, as it's put in other places. But the wrath of God abides on him. So Christ is the only name under heaven and earth whereby you can be saved, because he holds the keys. <coughs> he lived sinlessly, and his life was worth more than ours. And if through his blood we can be forgiven then that is the only way that we can have eternal life. If you have to die for your own sins, you're dead and done. 
That's, it's all over for you. But if you can be forgiven through his lack of sin, then you can live. So Christ is the key to everything. And John makes that very, very clear in these first three chapters of the book of John. That, And we can extrapolate from this that what was done back then is also being done again today. Uh, the story here in these first three chapters fits perfectly uh, what is, is happening and what the prophecies project will happen here at the end time. So there's more to the book of John, I think, than perhaps we may have realized.